just share a few concepts with you. Can I do that? Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, you know, he, he reached a point in life he was having some real struggles uh, because of, uh, the, uh, the Scripture says, because of the revelations that God had given him. And it says there was a thorn in the flesh that, get, that was given him. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a physical malady. Some people call it all kinds of things, and I could name off what the, the Bible scholars say it may have been. I don't think it's any of that. There was a thorn in the flesh that uh, challenged Paul everywhere he went. I believe it was demon spirits that were stirred up everywhere he went. He had constant trouble, constant challenge, and you know you can read about that in, what is it, 2 Second, Second Corinthians uh, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 6, perhaps. But I want to read this. Um, I, I just want to read this one thing. And of that, Paul said three different times, this is 2 Corinthians 12, 8. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. Then he made this, this comment, which is a concept. My power works best in weakness. Can you say that with me? My power works best in weakness. And then he said this, and this is New Living Translation, so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. Now, when's the last time you said that? When's the last time we went to somebody and said, you know, I can't do this right. Praise God. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. Glory to God. Well, that's what he did. He said, again, now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why, now here's the challenge. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. So, you know, we as Americans, we think of weakness as vulnerability, we think of weakness as something that we personally need to shore up and work on, right? But God sees weakness different. God sees weakness as an opportunity for his supernatural ability to explode in your life and in your circumstance. You ever think about it that way? So maybe you have a weakness of the flesh. Maybe there's a, something you keep tripping over and, and it makes you ashamed well, see, you take that weakness to God, say, Lord, I need your strength because his strength's made perfect in weakness. Is that true? Maybe your weakness is worry. Maybe your weakness, you're a, you're a business person. I feel by the Holy Ghost. You're a business person and some things you can't figure out and it doesn't work. It's not working like you thought it would. Well, you take that weakness to God and say, God, I don't know what to do. And he's happy for you to say that because when we go to him and say, God, I don't know, I don't know how, this is bigger than me. This is stronger than me. I don't have a clue. You know, he's, it's, he's basically saying, I'm so glad that you would be honest with me and get yourself out of the way. I've been wanting to help you the whole time. Is that true? Yeah. So there's somebody here, your business is going to take a turn, but you've got to tr quit wrangling over it yourself. You know, we have expertise. God gives us gifts and talents. Sometimes we let those gifts and talents get in the way. Huh? You have so many things rolling around inside. Um, you know, and the other thing that I remembered was, and it came to me, and I need to minister here for just a minute if you let me. You know, after, uh, in fact, I, I, here's my hard copy Bible. 
How many ever read your hard copy Bible? I've got 30-something Bibles on my iPad, but, and so I use it a lot because I like the translations. But right here, here's Adam and Eve sinned. The uh, serpent came to him. them. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Uh, one day he asked the woman, did God really say we must not eat of the fruit from any of the trees of the garden? Of course we may eat of, of fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. Now, God didn't say don't touch it, he said don't eat it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows your eyes will be opened, and as soon as you eat it, you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Now, if you do some searching, uh, you know, animals are covered with fur, uh, skin. Uh, fish are covered with, uh, you know, some are skin, but others, you know, have other coverings, right? And then, of course, birds have feathers. But God clothed the human race because we were made in his image and in his likeness with an enswathment of the glory of God that surrounded them. And so right here, at their moment, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. What happened? The glory of God dissipated, disappeared. Do you know sin will cause the glory of God on your life to disappear? That's what happened to them. They found themselves naked because they didn't have fur like an animal and scales like a fish, and feathers like a bird. No, they were clothed with God's glory. <laughs> and it left. And they looked down, that, that covering was no longer there. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now you think God would, would leave them alone. He didn't. In fact, listen, God, God has moved towards you when you do wrong. You ever thought about it that way? God was moved towards them. And so it says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing. You know, the verbiage uh, in the original language tends to seem to indicate that God regularly came down in the evening to talk with his creation, with Adam and Eve. So it says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking in the garden. They heard him. He was there in visible form. God Almighty that created everything is there. Why, why, did, why was he there? He was there to fellowship with him. Question, did God already know what they did? God probably felt it when that enswathment of glory stopped. I'm sure his heart felt it when their personal heart-to-heart -heart fellowship ceased. He felt it inside him. God did. Instead of moving away from them, he moved towards them. See the concept? So at your worst day, do you think God's moved by your badness? Does it hurt his heart? Uh-huh. Why? He wants you. And he doesn't want anything that mars your life or hinders your fellowship with him. How many hear me? He wants you. He doesn't want the religious you. He wants the real you. He wants your heart affection. 
And he longs for us to be honest with him. So God came down. You know, us, what happens to, what do we do? What's our response? When somebody hurts us, offends us, does exactly opposite of what we wanted them to do, what do we do? We fuss, we cuss, we make a scene, we run away, and we say, leave me alone. That is not the way God is. I just think it's amazing to me that I read this verse, Genesis 3, 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. He was seeking them. In your worst moment, God is seeking you. You ever thought about that? When you send your worst, God may be seeking you the most. Does that mean we're supposed to sin a lot so God will seek us a lot? That's not, no, no. In fact, Paul had something to say that about that in Romans 6. Should we sin that grace may abound? No, no, God forbid, he said. God forbid. But what you got to know is when the weakness of your flesh overwhelms you and you do what you know you shouldn't and you defy your conscience and you defy what you know is right, don't run from God. You run to him. I mean, he's that way. And he just wants you to be gut level honest. And that's what perhaps is the hardest thing for us to do. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And see, that's what we do. Instead of running to God when we have challenges, we run away from him and we hide. Sin produces hiding. And think about your personal relationships. When somebody's doing something you don't like, you want to hide yourself. You hide from them. They hide from you. Instead of being open and transparent, we often hide. Sin produces hiding. They hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? It wasn't the man that responded to God first. It was God responding to the man first. Where are you? And how many times in life is God, is his voice beckoning us? Where are you, Mitch? What you thinking, Mitch? What you want to do, Mitch? What are you challenged with? And he'll call your name. Can we talk? My daddy used to come to me when I was a little boy and said, Mitch, we need to talk. And see, God would come to you and say, well, I want to talk. Because that's what he did in the garden right after the first man and woman sinned. Where are you? He replied, Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. Watch, I was afraid because I was naked. I was afraid. And that's where, that's where this, uh, this tendency we have to move away from God when problems come in life. You know what I found is also people move away from each other when they have problems. Instead of, instead of being with each other, they have a tendency to move away from each other. When they're having challenges, they isolate instead and they insulate instead of become transparent and, and voice the need. Uh, I've, heard, I've said this many times. Uh, this is really weird. Uh, my Baptist pastor and his wife... Um, when I was, I don't know, I was about four, I think I was four years old in this early 60s, and uh, they gave my mom and dad two black cats. The problem was one was a male and the other one was a female. And at one point in my childhood, we had 21 cats in my yard. I'm not making, none of them were in the house because my, my dad didn't believe in animals being in the house. They wouldn't come in the house. But man, they covered the yard, I want you to know. We never had problems with mice and lizards and snakes. 
And birds could not survive, let me say, in our house. But, but we had a lot of cats. And one thing I noticed about the cats as they tooled through life was every once in a while, I knew them all, you know. We gave, I gave names all of them, you know. And uh, they come up, you know how cats are when you open the door, they, they want to see if you got something to feed them. So their tail is sticking straight up in the air. So you got 21 tails looking at you, <laughs> sticking straight up. And they were, you know, whining. But then if I noticed there's, there's one that wasn't there, I'd always, and we had a, we had a pile of bricks in a couple of few spots in the yard. My dad and my grandfather helped build the house that I was raised in. And so they had some excess brick. It was a brick house. So I had excess bricks. Some were stacked over here. Some were stacked over here in the corner. And anytime I couldn't find a cat, I'd just sneak over there one day real slowly. And I would look down and, and uh, you know, sometimes I have to get a flashlight and there'd be a little hole in the bricks. And sure enough, that cat's laying right there. Maybe, maybe a cat had got bitten by a snake or, you know, they had had a fight or whatever. Or maybe they ate something bad or were infirmed in some way. But that's what animals do. Animals isolate when they're hurt. And, you know, it's funny. That's what we do. We isolate when we hurt. And then the very people that should be able to nurse us back to life aren't able to. And that's what Adam and Eve were doing. They hid because of fear. They noticed the nakedness of their, of their personage. And all they, were, all they were thinking about was what they weren't, that they used to be, that they should be now. And see, in the middle of that, God came towards them. Isn't that great? God came. He didn't run from them. He didn't push them away. He didn't say, you sorry rascals, what's wrong with you? No, he said, where are you? Isn't that good? Now, does that give you any hope? So at your worst, God wants to show his best and his strength to you. See, we're living in a very lonely world. We're in a confused place right now in America. People are confused about right and wrong. They're confused about marriage. They're confused about sexuality. They're confused about honesty and integrity. How many hear me, right? right. See, it's, 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 you know, and young kids are growing up thinking what's right and what's wrong. Where are the standards? There are no standards. Lawlessness has uh, come about in America over the past while. Is it true? Is that affecting your children? You better believe it. That's why we need to be a standard for them. Is that true? Then it's affecting people that ought to know better. And people that ought to know better are doing things that are hindering themselves and they're hindering their relationship with the Lord. Now see, it's a weakness, right? But what I wanted you to see was when you're weak, you're strong. Jesus said to the Apostle Paul, when, I, when you're weak, I'm strong. When, when I'm weak, I'm strong. Listen to let me I have to go back over there. I gotta read it again in the context. I'm not done over here, but let me let me sneak over here. If I was doing it on my iPad, I'd already be there. Think about that. That's my pragmatic head. Here we go. Three times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses, in insults hardships, persecutions, troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. Wow. Uh, 2024, I think it's going to have some unusual twists and turns. And uh, A.B. Simpson, who was one of the guys I like to read after, he died in 1919, got some great books. He's got a, the Christ of the Bible series, if you're interested. It's six volumes. 
But he just has some real nuggets in there that will just make you shut, your, shut the book and think. And this one, he said, the veil that hides our future is woven by the hand of mercy. Sometimes God won't let you see what's ahead of you. Uh, Bob and Lisa didn't know that Bob would be in heaven today. Bob was in our church last week this time. You know, I saw Bob last time I saw him. He was in the foyer. And then that happened this week, and now Bob's transitioned to heaven, and here's Lisa. You know, that's a shock, isn't it? So I don't know what is coming up in 2024, 2025. I have some sense but uh, of what things may come, but I don't know factually. But see, God knows everything ahead of time. Is that true? And sometimes it's the mercy of God. If you knew, you knew for instance, if you knew your day of death, that would overwhelm you. That's all you think about. Huh? So God withholds lots of things from you. Why? For our best, so our mind won't take control. Right? So you just got to know that about yourself and about God. He's sometimes on purpose. He won't reveal everything to you because that's not walking by faith. That's walking by sight. And I've often said to the Lord, why don't you tell me, you know, succinctly, one, two, three, four. He won't, he won't always do that. The Apostle Paul, when he was Saul and he was persecuting the church on the, on, on the road there, he, uh, Jesus appeared to him, you know, and he fell down blinded by the light of Jesus' visage. And then um, he said, Lord, what would you have me do to Jesus? And Jesus didn't tell him one, two, three, four. He said, go to the city. And then he didn't even tell him what to do then. He said, go into the city and it'll be told you what you should do. Now, see, there's a pattern you need to know about the Lord. He doesn't tell you your future. Sometimes he won't tell you except I want you to do this. I won't even tell you why. That's the way the Lord is. Why? He wants you to walk by faith and not by sight. You know, God could have told Abraham when he was going on top of Mount Moriah with his son by his side and with the sticks perhaps on his son's back and they were going up to offer sacrifice to the Lord and his son said, well, we got the twigs, we got the stuff. Where's sacrifice? And Abraham said, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide the sacrifice, right? Well, you know, God didn't tell Abraham what was going to happen. He didn't tell his son that you just sacrifice, dude. I mean, he'd, he'd probably run the other way. He said, Daddy, you ain't going to get me. I'm running. And then they got to the top of the mount. God, it was a test for Abraham. Then he, you know, Titus made the sacrifice, put all the twigs down, got the fire ready, you know, got the kindling ready. And then, come here, son, what you doing? Then he... Then he manhandled him and pinned him down with a rope probably. Then he stuck the knife up in the air to kill his son as a sacrifice to God, and God said, don't do it. Right? Why did God do it that way? Why didn't God tell Abraham, I'm not going to really let you kill your son. I just want to see if you would. Why didn't he say that? It was a test. And we're going to find in 2024, there are tests. Are you going to obey God when it's not convenient? Are you going to obey the Lord when the rest of culture is turning against what you know is right? Are you going to be honorable when everybody else is doing the dishonorable thing? Are you going to tell the truth when nobody else will around you?
when I'm weak, I'm strong. So I just want to encourage you. It seems as though the Lord is talking to us about this today. And so we back to Genesis 3. Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, speaking to God. So I hid, I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And see, Adam didn't even do it right. He blamed his wife. That woman you gave me, she picked that fruit and gave me, and I bit it because she bit it. Yeah, he's messed up. You know, the, the judgment came. The point I want you to get out of that was when they messed up, God ran towards them, not away from them. Is that good? So, so you're going to leave here this morning. We're going to go do what we do. You get, some of you go to school. Some of you have a job. Others have a business you run. Uh, you've, we've got busy, 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 busy housewives who have multiple children, and you're running in three directions at once, right? You're doing your stuff, and uh, and God just wants to know that in the midst of all you do, that he's number one. So he may speak to you, and you may mess up somewhere, some way. You may say some things that should not be said. You may do some things that should not be done. God wants you to know he wants you to run to him. When I, when I came to the Lord when I was uh, 17, I turned 18 the next month. I, I didn't know any of this. And, and I just have to tell you that God, he knows you so well. And... I'm very particular in the way I think about things, and I like redundancy and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, it's one thing that helps me to be a leader. But uh, I didn't know anything about God, and I didn't know how he would deal with me. And, and I found myself on, on the floor of my bedroom on, on a piece of carpet crying out saying, God, I, I don't know what to do. And I didn't like, I'm the kind of personality, if you've got a challenge, I'm the guy you want to talk to because I'm a problem. So I love to solve problems. Sometimes God doesn't want me to solve the problem. Sometimes I am the problem, <laughs> right? Susan can say, yes, that's right, Mitch, you know. But God wants us to pour, pour our hearts out. And this morning is, for some reason, all about me and you being willing to be vulnerable to God. I was going to talk about being a pastor because I'm talking about the local church. And it kept coming up as I was studying. The Lord didn't tell me he's going to do this today. I didn't know I was going to be talking about this today. But what kept coming up in my mind, and it wasn't in my notes, was, was Jesus calling himself the great shepherd of the sheep, right? He said, I am the shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, right? And then 1 Peter 5, Peter, he was talking to shepherds, pastors. A pastor is a shepherd. You know, if you're going to have a shepherd, the sheep got to be willing to yield to him. So I just kept having this question come up. Am I willing to be a sheep? You know, I've traveled, um, I've been in Africa a lot. I've been all over India, but in Africa, you know, because it was so rustic and some places you've heard me say don't have uh, running water electricity. Some people have been with me there. And, you know, animals abound, you know, We've got donkeys and goats and sheep and cats and dogs and cattle and all kinds of stuff. And uh, I just don't like goats because you turn your back, they're going to hit you in the butt. I just don't like, they're just stubborn old rascals. They're looking at you with those really weird devil-looking eyes. 
because they look in each way, other, different ways, you know. So. But a sheep, if you get around sheep that, I mean, you know, they just, you know, they don't know what, they don't know anything. And when God asks me to be a sheep, I don't want to be. When God asks you to be a sheep, you know what he's asking you to do? Have no opinion of your own. Have no rights of your own. Have no path of your own. You don't even know where you're going to get your food or your water. You're completely dependent on the shepherd. The way I was raised, I don't like that. I like to be in charge of me. Do you? I do. But see, God asked me a long time ago, Mitch, I want you to be a, I want you to be a sheep. Sheep can easily get off in the ditch or get off into the briars or brambles and then their, you know, their coat gets stuck and then the shepherd has to go and unstick them. And shepherds have an uncanny way. If you study it, I don't have time to go into detail, but if you study it in detail, uh, shepherds, particularly in some, in some countries, um, they know the sheep maybe sometimes better than they know a lot of humans. And the sheep learn the shepherd's voice. There's a guy I read after. His name's William Barclay. It's in the notes in my Bible. I have a way to put notes in my Bible on my iPad. And William Barclay, who was an English theologian, brought out the fact that shepherds, the, vo the sheep become attuned to their voice. And they had a certain way to call each sheep. When they called the sheep by name, that sheep, because of the nuances of the tone of his voice, when the shepherd mentioned something to that sheep, that sheep would look. Might be way in the back, a long way from him. But when he made a certain noise, that sheep, it commanded attention. Or the shepherd would have other noises. They're non-human noises he made. Almost animalistic type noises a shepherd would make. And some of those noises, every sheep, I don't care where they are. They're in the fields all over the place. When that shepherd made the noise, every sheep commands attention. And when the shepherd turns around and starts moving, they move right towards him. Because the sheep know the shepherd's voice. In America, we have a lot of people that go to church, but they're not yet willing to become a sheep. So they'll yield to the great shepherd. Did you hear what I'm saying? We, you know, because we have the individualized bill of rights and we have individual rights as Americans, that's really good. But the bad, the downside of that is we don't do community well. I got a three or four rights. The rest of you looking at me. So when it comes to the family of God, the kingdom of God, the church of the Lord Jesus, we still want to remain autonomous. And instead of being sheep, we act like goats. That goat don't need you. That goat will butt you if you, don't, if you look too long. Huh? He's going to do his own thing, make his own way. But the sheep, without the shepherd, the sheep could perish. An animal could kill him or he could, he could fail to find the water he needs or the food he needs, right? Or the shelter he needs in stormy times, right? So Americans, we as Americans got some things to learn about community. And I think we're going into a period of time that God's going to ask us to be willing to be dependent on each other. Everybody's looking. You ought to see what I see. Y'all just looking at me like, Really? Are you willing to be dependent on Jesus? 
question. Are, are you willing to say, God, I don't know. God, I can't. God, that's bigger than me. Or sometimes, God, I don't want to do that. I've had a bunch of times in life God asked me to do something. I said, I don't want to do that. And I almost heard him say, it ain't about your want to, son. I want you to do it. Want to is not in the equation. Will you obey? Right? If you be willing, Isaiah said to the Israelites, if you be willing and obedient, you eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and, do, and, and you know, rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. Right? The measure of my disobedience becomes the measure of my hardship. Sometimes we're in a life that we've made for ourselves. You know, Frank Sinatra, I think he got it from Isaiah 53, 6. He crooned a tune, I did it my way. And that'll get you in more trouble with God than anything. God's asking us this morning, would you be willing to give your life away? You know, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means it's an olive grove. I've been there. Those gnarled olive trees now, they're over 2,000 years old. Olive trees won't die. The outside might die, but the inside stays renewed. That sounds like something we ought to be, though. The outward man perishes, yet the inward man, right? But the word Gethsemane, that olive orchard, means the place of crushing. It's odd that Jesus would go there to pray, and just before he went to the cross, you know what he did. He, he went a measure of distance from the disciples and said, God, if there's any way in the world that you can, uh, you know, take this uh, cup of suffering from me, please, please. Jesus was God, and the God part of him knew what was ahead of him. He didn't lie. His flesh didn't want to do it. He knew he'd be separated from God. He knew the cruel, terrible punishment enacted by um, the form of capital punishment in Roman times, which was all, all, awesomely barbaric, the cross, and was disdained by the culture. And he's saying, God, please. And see, that's what we sometimes do, God, please. You want me to do that? You don't want me to do that? You want me to go there? You don't want me to do that? Please, please. And this is why some people fail to get close to the Lord because they're afraid they'll hear him talk to them. Did you hear me? But what's worse, refusing to get close to God, not let him talk to you, and then when you stand before him, you have to answer as to why you didn't do what he called you to do, even though you didn't know it because you wouldn't take the time to seek. Right? So this morning, the presence of God came, and he was asking us. He was asking us to humble ourselves. He was asking us to be vulnerable. So that's hard to do if you're raised in a certain family, a certain home. If you have an absent father, an absentee father is a father that's in the home, but he's emotionally not there. He's emotionally distant. An absentee father's in the home, but he doesn't care for his family. He's too consumed with his own stuff to take care of his children, to train his boys, to help his girls. Did you hear me? 
Yeah, you can have a mama in the home, and she's so busy with her extracurricular stuff, she's not being the mama God called her to be. Now, that can happen. So you can have absentee parents. Then many today, because of divorce, we have a lot of homes that don't have, they have an absent father. He's just not there. And see, if you have an absent father or absentee parents, even though they're in the home, but they're absent, it affects you deeply, and you know that. You know what it does? It affects your ability to be close to people because as a child, you got to learn to fend for yourself. And then if there's harshness in your home, can we just talk? If there's harshness in your home, you know, you got a way of, uh, just like Adam and Eve did, putting up a wall of separation. Somebody's always badgering you. Daddy's always saying something. You get in a lecture every time you do this or that. There's a perfectionist in the house. You know, you learn how to put walls up, walls of protection. One of my friends that died many years ago, he called it onion layers of protection. You put up around yourself. You don't let other people in, much less God. What causes that dysfunctional living in a home? In a home? God created a home. Now, I'm really meandering now. God created home life to be a, a heaven on earth. What do I mean by that? God created a home life to have a daddy who is nurturing, a father who is present emotionally, mentally, as well as physically, a, God, a father who guides and leads and nurtures and provides, a father who protects, a father who trains, right? See, that's, that's the father's God called. And many fathers abdicate their responsibilities. And then a mother that is completely nurturing. There's something about a, a woman. Women are by nature nurturing. And that nurturing means they take care of your physical needs, but it also means their, their understanding of how you think and feel about anything. Susan has a totally different take. We mentioned it, when was that, last night or this morning? You know, she has a totally different take on anything we do, anything that we're involved in. She always thinks about how the person feels. I said, it don't matter how they feel. We got to do this. <laughs> and she's always right. That's right. <laughs> but see, you got, a, you got a mama, you got a daddy in a home. And God's goal was, y'all okay? God's goal was that they create an environment for life. Now listen, God created the human personality to be raised in a home with a male father and a female mother. It is a perversion of the plan of God for a baby to be, born, to be uh, raised by two daddies. One who's acting like the female and the other who's acting like the male and both of them are male. I want you to know that's an abomination and it will never work. It'll cause that culture to disintegrate. And that's what you're experiencing right now, right? Or you got two women. One is the mama and the other is the daddy. It doesn't work because it's not the plan of God. You can't change your DNA. You can't change the spirit God placed in you. And those that advocate these things don't even believe there's a spirit person inside of us. We're just bodies and bodies and minds. Oh no, we're spirit, soul, and body. 
Right? So God created us to live in this environment of love. In fact, God's plan was that mothers and fathers love him, get their plans from him, get their nurturing from him, get what they need from him on the inside, and they're so full of him that they just love their kids. And they know when to be firm, and they know when to be caring. They know when to toe the line, and they know when to pick them up and hold them and brush off the dirt because they fell on their face. Right? We haven't learned that in America. And since World War II, with the breakup of the home and with mothers, and doesn't, you know, I understand working, and, you know, Susan worked for how many years? Don't tell everybody, I won't say anything. But because the, because the workforce now includes, you know, women too, then you got the home that's in a measure of dysfunction. Unless you're working on it really hard. Susan and I worked really hard. We had a conversation. We got four children. And, you know, I talked to, we talked about all four of them. And, you know, they're not perfect children. But, you know, they're really good people. And they have the right um, attitude towards themselves, towards others, towards life. They have a work ethos. And they just understand how to treat people. And you want your children to do that. We're living in a culture, friends, you just don't know. We got a boatload of need. Did you know it? So if you're raised in that kind of environment that is dysfunctional. See, when you come to the Lord, it's hard to understand God as a father. You know, God is both mother and father. He's a male figure in the Bible. There's not Ms. God. Don't work. The equation just don't work. But all the nurturing you need is in God. All the firmness you need is in God. Did you hear me? And what we need to learn to do is trust God. We haven't learned to do that because many times we don't trust our own parents. I, you know, I thought I lived in a great home. I had to give my mother to Jesus and my father to Jesus. I thought, you know, they had, they had halos on when I was younger. And then I, I come to see there was a measure of dysfunction in my home. My dad, my dad was a workaholic. My mother was a perfectionist. Had to have everything just right on a certain day. And mama, if you're listening, I love you. She's 89. She's usually listening to me from her house. But, you know, I, I realized that those things affected me. And when I came to Jesus, the perfectionism that I got from mama, he said, you got to, you got to throw that out the window. And the workaholic tendencies, which means you get your good feeling and your sense of self-worth and satisfaction out of accomplishment. I had to let that go. And God sent me through a series of, in, in, of circumstances in life where I had to come face to face with me and my workaholic tendencies. And I had to learn to get my, even though I had been in ministry for a number of years, this was in my 30s. And I had to learn to, to get my self-worth and who I am from who I am in Jesus, not what I did as a human being, as a man. Some businessmen... They're all about that business, and their identity is in their business. Did you hear me? Other people, their identity is in their profession. Jesus wants you to have your identity in him. Got it? So all we did today, we worshiped, and, you know, we're saying, God, come and search me and know me and pour my heart out to God. See, that's, that's, we need to do that because no family is perfect, and there's such dysfunction, particularly in the family in America, Right? And God wants to do something about that. And this can become a place of wholeness if you let it be. How many hear me? Because he's a good, good father. That's who he is.
Isn't that good? So I want to encourage you as I stop here, I want to encourage you, take, take what I said and uh, do what I did as a, a young teenager. I'd get off by myself, and I didn't know what I was doing. I'd just say, God, I, I, I don't know how to do this. I'd never, had a, 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 an, I'd never had a person where I could just sit down in front of them and tell them the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent, the sinful, the wrong. Never had that. No. No. Never had it. Now, now, I think I probably could have to my dad, but I never did. My mom, I never did. I never did. I was too proud to do it. I had to be right. And if I confess the problem, then I'm wrong. And I can't admit I'm wrong. When I came to Jesus, the number one thing, the one, number one thing he put his hand on was my pride. And I, I don't know how I fell upon Everybody okay? Is this making sense? Sometimes I feel like I'm rambling, but maybe the rambling needs to be. Isaiah 57. I fell across this verse right here in the King James Bible. Uh, in fact, here, let me do this. I hadn't even looked at my iPad today. How unusual. So here is Isaiah 57, 15. Here is King James Version. I, you know, I don't read it a lot today, but here it is. This is what I read. Oh, let me go to King James. Here we go. All these versions. Hang on a second. Mm -hmm. Right here. There. Uh, for thus says the high and lofty one. Now I'm 18 when I read this. Just turned 18. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. With him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. New Living Translation says, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. I like that. I, I, I you know, I, I got stars on my head for memorizing scripture as a little Baptist boy. And uh, even though I was smoking pot and doing drugs, I had to read my Bible before I went to bed every night when I was high. No, I'm kidding. I know how to be religious, y'all. It stinks. But I, 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 when I saw that scripture right there, y'all, I had never done that in my life. And I read that one time, and it's like God was pointing his wonderful finger at me and saying, Mitz, that's you. I want you to do that right there. And I said, God, I don't know how to do that. So I got on my face, shut my bedroom door as a little teenager. And I said, God, I don't, I've never done this in my life. But I said this, I humble myself. You know, if you don't humble yourself, God's got a way of putting you in a place where you will get humbled. And I promise you, it's better to humble yourself. So I started saying, God, I humble me. I don't know how to do that, but help me. I said, God, I'm full of pride. I want everybody to think I'm the best person in the room. I want to know everything. I want to do everything right. I want to be better than everybody else. And I'm mad at everybody that don't like me. I'm just full of, I did. I said, I'm full of pride. I want bad things to happen to people that do bad things to me. I'm full of malice. I want to be, I want to be my own justice giver. I can dish it, dish it out for them, to them. And I say, God, I'm just all wrong, and I don't know how to get right. I had the proverbial knot in my throat, emotional knot, 
When I came to Jesus, I didn't know how to get rid of it. I got filled with the Holy Spirit, and that knot would still be right there. And I say, God, what is wrong with me? I lived on the high of being filled with the Holy Spirit just a, you know, a few weeks. Then when I settled back down to planet Earth, it's like, God, I had to deal with my problems, my frustrations, and they were all still there from my past life. You get it? All the lusts, all the mess. And I say, God, I don't know how to straighten it out. But when you get before God and you tell him the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent, he just has a way of saying, okay, in your weakness, I'll be your strength. But if you never do it, there is a strength you'll never have. Did you get it? So close your eyes. I'm done. Oh, I got about 25 more minutes, but we're done. Come on. Close your eyes a minute. Glory to God. Lord, we just worship you. Lord, we are the church. We're in a building. We often call the building the church. We're the church. And right now, today, right here at Victory Church, you just want us to be willing to yield. Are you willing to be a sheep? Huh? Are you willing to be led? Are you willing for somebody else to call the shots and give you direction? Are you willing for someone else to control you? That wouldn't be a human. That would be God, right? Are you willing? See, a lot of us, we come to Jesus, but, you know, we still want to do it our way. Do you have things in your life that you're hurt about, shamed of? Things you still are involved in that you know you ought to be over, but you're not. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's self-centeredness. Maybe there's certain kinds of people you don't even want to be around. See, God knows all that stuff. Come on. So, Father, we humble ourselves today. I dare you to pray this. Pray with me out loud. Put, cut the lights down a little bit lower. It's okay if you don't mind. Everybody okay? We're going to go home in a minute. Mira's coming up to give announcements and all that, so get ready, Mira. We do it all backwards today. Come on, hold your hands out. Worship the Lord a minute. Lord, you know every person in this room. We all know you in varying levels and degrees. And where we are, you want us to come up another step, whoever we are. You know, when you lift your hands with your palms towards the ceiling, that's really a sign of submission to God. You say, you know, we're to pray with holy hands without wrath and doubting. Hands represent my life and who I am and what I do. So hold you up before God. That's your hands. Lord, I hold my hands up to you. <laughs> now, I dare you to pray this. Heavenly Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. And Lord, right now, I humble myself. You know me better than I know myself. You know every weakness. You know every negative spot. You know every dark place. You know the things that I deal with in a way that nobody else does. And I humble myself to you. I need your help. And I ask you to help me in these areas of life that seem impossible to me in the name of Jesus. Now, would you name to him the things that you need help in? You don't have to say that out loud because he that's amazing to me. Eight billion people, he knows your thoughts. So tell him, Lord, I got to deal with this. I'm dealing with this. It may be your mouth. It may be your attitude. It may be fleshly things. 
could be your response patterns, communication habits. It may be a real challenge to forgive someone who has hurt you very, very deeply. They don't deserve being forgiven, but you got to do it. Tell the Lord if it's a struggle. Thank you, Lord. Others, it's your finances. Others, it's your business. It's your job. It's your occupation. You're dissatisfied. Others, it's your marriage. It's your children. Oh, my goodness. It's you. It's how you look. It's how you think. It's how you think about yourself. Lord, we lay all of those things before the throne of God in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I ask you to minister life right in the middle of our weakness. Say it out loud, Heavenly Father. I ask you to minister your life right in the middle of all of the weak places in my life. And Lord, help me to humble me before you and open my heart to you. In Jesus' name. Lord, I give you my heart. Give you my soul. I live for you. Every breath that I take, every moment I wait. Jesus wants your life. To have the life of God and to have forgiveness of sin, we have to repent. Paul said, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved with the heart you believe and with your mouth confessions made to salvation. So that part of that confession is you've got to repent. If you're living in sin, you've got to be willing to give it up. If you're a liar, the way you live life is a lie, you've got to give up the lies and start telling the truth. If you're stealing from people in whatever way you steal, you've got to be willing to stop stealing, right? If you're immoral in whatever way you're immoral, sex outside of marriage is immorality. And it's become standardized in America. If you're human, you just going to have sex. That's wrong, my friends. God made sex for marriage. Not for everybody that you meet that you like and you think they're hot. You got to repent and say it's sin. I got two fires in my house. One up, actually one, one, two, three fires in my house. I got one in my hot water heater, and I got one in my upstairs furnace because it's natural gas, and my downstairs furnace. I got three fires. They're in boxes, and I got up this morning. And it was real nice. And we took a shower. It was real hot. But fire outside the box will kill you. Burn my house down. And that's what sex is. And in America, it's become a god. It's become an idol. 
So if you're infatuated with sex and you're not married, yeah, if you're married, fine. Husband, wife, wonderful. Outside of that, repent. You got it? If you're selfish, a lot of people are self-centered. They only think about themselves. You got to repent. What I'm saying is to have salvation, you got to say, God, this is who I am. I'm willing to make the change. That's repentance. You get that? It ain't just praying a prayer and then going your way. In, in India, we got people who have icons on the shelves of their homes. They have icons of the gods. And they burn little incense and put little pieces of fruit or flower, lays a flower in front of them. There it is. And then when they come to Jesus, they'll put Jesus up there with the rest of the idols. Uh-uh. We say you got to chunk all the idols, get rid of all the flowers, get rid of all the incense, get rid of all the fruit, and put Jesus as your numero uno, your number one. And you don't need a picture of him, and you don't need an idol of him. He's in your heart. That's different. And you can worship him anywhere. 